I wonder how you're all doing as I look around. Probably there's as many answers to that as there are people in the room. We all have the particular conjunction of our own practice, meeting with our own history, within our own capacity at this moment. But there are several kind of broad themes that are probably current. One of those broad themes is the confrontation with the uh, with discomfort. It can be pretty hard to face our lives in the rather uh, direct, rather naked way that we've been doing for the last 24 hours. Some of you who have joined us from the Hermitage Wing have been doing for the last days, (coughs) weeks, months, some of you. It's an interesting perspective for those who've just about made it through one day. Might be, might be, might be impressed, might be shocked to imagine that some here have been following this kind of rhythm for the last weeks or months. So as we settle into the retreat, as I say. It may be that confrontation with some of the discomfort of our lives. Mental discomfort. (coughs) Physical discomfort. Emotional discomfort. In other words, any, any place in which we kind of rub up against in a tender or painful or difficult way against the fact of being alive, the fact of having this alive process which we call a mental life, physical life, emotional life. It's a little bit of an artificial separation. We can't find mind apart from body. We can't find body apart from emotion. It's, it's a, a very seamless Interrelated set of processes unfolding, interrelating, moving all the time. But if you forgive the artifice of dividing it up into that in, in such a way, we can nevertheless kind of recognize aspects of that interplay of our experience which we would call mental emotional, physical. Whatever it is that most fundamentally animates our being, and we don't need any conjecture about what that is, or whether there is something that most fundamentally animates our being. This very aliveness, this very immediacy, this very fact of here we are, alive, (coughs) conscious. This. The very fact of this Participation in this moment, within this life, is the confirmation that our being most fundamentally is animated. That which most fundamentally animates our being 
is a free process. That which most fundamentally animates us is unshakable, is imperturbable by whatever happens to arise within it. And the implications of that for us, really, to the extent that we recognize or maybe intuit somehow or maybe just hope that there's something unshakable, something imperturbable, something uncorruptible, something which despite the complexity and confusion of our mental life and emotional life and physical life can't be disturbed, perturbed, deranged, upset, imbalanced, corrupted in any way. To the extent that we recognize or intuit that truth of something unshakable at its most fundamental in what this is or who we are. To that extent, the implications of that truth are that there's nothing we need be afraid of. If that which is most fundamentally What this is giving rise to life, to consciousness, to all of this which we experience here, that we then kind of step down into a sense of me experiencing it and here seeming to mean my mind and my body and my heart. If, if that which is fundament, most fundamentally giving rise to all this is undisturbable, unshakable, untroubleable by all the things that come and go within it, then to the extent we recognize that unshakability, to that extent we know in the depths of our being there's nothing we need be afraid of. There's nothing we need turn away from. There's nothing we need distract from. There's nothing we need run away from. There's nothing we need obsess over. To the extent that we don't recognize that, to that extent we're kind of left with the distracting, the defending, the hoping, the running, the trying, the struggling. And some of you today in in a meeting with me, I've been uh, exploring, reporting some of that sense of struggle. Struggling with mental life, emotional life, physical life. It's a kind of beautiful idea, maybe, that there's nothing we need be afraid of. But there's, uh, you know, there's a kind of, uh, that nice idea kind of bashes up against the fact that there seems to be a lot that we're afraid of. (coughs) We can think of countless scenarios, I'm sure, of things to be afraid of. We have whole industries that 
um, make lots of money out of telling us there's lots of things to be afraid of. We have endless news reports in newspapers and on TV that seem to report almost nothing but things to be afraid of. We've got industries like insurance that turn almost completely on the idea that there's plenty of things to be afraid of. We've got advertising that subtly reinforces the idea that there's plenty of things to be afraid of and that somehow by getting or doing or becoming different, getting something, doing something, becoming something different, we might manage temporarily, hopefully, to escape from some of those things we're afraid of. But if we come back from the, the, all that externalization and the externalization of the world after all is just a reflection of what's going on internally. Whatever we produce culturally is, an, is a reflection of you know, culture. Human culture is nothing but the, uh, the kind of... Um, no, arises out of internal human culture to the extent that we have a fearful way of meeting li- that life, of meeting life, to the extent that many people share a fearful way of meeting li- that li- life, to that extent we'll, pro- we'll um, produce a culture that, recognize- that reflects a fearful way of meeting life. So if we come back from the externalities to just life as it's showing up in us, moment by moment, which is where some of the emphasis, a big part of the emphasis of this practice in general is, and where a very big part of the emphasis of a meditation retreat, which is just part of the breadth of what Dharma practice is, But a big part of the emphasis on a meditation retreat is on this coming back to just what's arising moment by moment here. Which, despite the artifice, we're calling mental life, emotional life, physical life. If we just come back to this very simple, straightforward, direct level of experience we seem to find that we're kind of afraid of physical life. Afraid of emotional life. Afraid of mental life. I'll try and explore a little bit what I mean. But maybe you've already got that sense in just sitting with your knees through the day. And what happens when there's some discomfort? We love, we love uh, kind of sensual delight, pleasant sensual experience. We can kind of melt into we love it so much it doesn't matter what it is it might be kind of a sexual pleasure it might be chocolate pleasure it might be anything whatever's your you know picker sensual delight and just reflect on that relationship to it the love of it the delight in it the way we go all uh, for it and why not beautiful Except we, st- we tend to kind of hold that up, that oh, feeling that goes along with sensual pleasure. And contrast it rather brutally with sensual displeasure, unpleasure, discomfort, pain. Maybe plain word. And we tend to have a rather tricky, rather complicated, rather unfree 
rather fearful relationship with discomfort, physical discomfort. We resist it. We don't like it. We don't want it. We try to get away from it, distract from it, defend against it, hide from it, fight it off. Kind of normal. You, me, the Buddha, we all prefer pleasant physical conditions than unpleasant physical conditions. But the teachings suggest, and our practice ultimately points towards and invites us towards the truth that there's nothing to be afraid of. That's the kind of freedom that we're longing for. A freedom wherein there's no fear. A freedom wherein we don't need to defend against, distract from. A freedom wherein we don't need to complicate and rigidify and uh, get into conflict with the unfolding movements of life. Because something is recognized at at the depths of life wherein there's no need for a fearful relationship. So then we're invited to really explore what's going on with with what we're calling physical life. And the place where we most get to see our fearful relationship with physical life is in discomfort. So in some ways, well, there's the possibility in there of inspiring ourselves sufficiently to say, well, this is what I'm interested in, is a life free from fear. And if discomfort's the best place to get in touch with my fearful relationship with physical life, bring it on. That's what I want, a fear-free life. Let's meet fear where it arises then. And of course, it's, it's a genuine challenge for us. Our physical comfort, is uh, our sense of identity is very tied up with our sense of physicality. It may be one of the most immediate ways that we recognize a sense of who we are is by our sense of our body. And so when our body is uncomfortable, there's a kind of you know, alarm signals. It threatens our sense of who we are, our sense of who we take ourselves to be. So in speaking about our relationship with physical discomfort, I in no way want to uh, belittle or undermine how challenging it can be to really meet physical discomfort with an open, curious, caring attention. That's what's most effective, actually, with physical discomfort. What's most effective is open, curious, caring attention. Because then we start to notice that what physical discomfort is underneath our ideas, underneath our fearful relationship, underneath the ideas that the fear has produced, oh my God, how long is this going to last? What's going to happen? In another way, your mind can kind of project towards the end of the sitting. Imagine you're kind of dragging your withered limbs from the meditation hall. You know, that's, that's the thoughts and images produced by a fearful relationship with physical discomfort. If you weren't seeing through that fearful lens, you could probably recognize that, well, anyone who ever came in with two legs probably managed to leave with both of them intact.
open, curious, caring attention, then, in other words, an attention that's not lost in reactivity to the physical discomfort, starts to really recognize that discomfort as the play of heat, pressure, tingling, etc. When the fear isn't acting that calls this pain, that says, I don't want, that starts to push against, resist, tighten, all of which serves to increase the physical discomfort, then body might be really just seen as the free movement of vibration and sensation. Some of you, I'm sure, have heard me tell before, before the anecdote of a friend who went to sit on the Zen retreat. And at the end went to see the teacher and said, well, I've really appreciated this retreat. It's been uh, wonderful. But oh, my legs hurt so much. If I continue to practice, if I continue to sit in meditation, if I continue to come to retreats, will my hurt legs hurt less? And the teacher said, Probably not. But after a while you won't mind so much. It's interesting. Slight change of perspective. That where the real freedom is around physical discomfort isn't around whether the discomfort's there or not. That's our small mind, our everyday mind. Which says, oh, well-being is where the discomfort is not. Get rid of the discomfort, find some well-being. But then we're on that kind of ping-pong between, oh, the sensual delight and, oh, the sensual discomfort. And as we know, nobody ever managed to organize their life in such a way as to have all of one and none of the other. So the shift that the Zen teacher is speaking about isn't whether the discomfort's here or not, it's whether we mind or not. In other words, it's whether we freak out or not, whether we resist or not, whether we fight with it or not, whether we produce all kinds of stories and ideas and projections or not, whether we get into that trap of uh, a longing for the meditation bell which seems to have the curious effect of slowing time down. The more we long, the slower it goes. Or whether we somehow can intuit the possibility of a free relationship with physical life and dare to take the, the radical step, the counterintuitive step in many ways, of giving open, Curious, caring attention to this. This movement of vibration and sensation. That's the invitation. And there's certainly plenty of opportunity while we're here. We're afraid, often, of our hearts. Afraid of the tenderness, the poignancy, the kind of uh, fluttering, the tremulousness. Is that a word? Tremulousness? You know what I mean, right? The tremulousness of our emotional life. Ordinarily, we often just don't notice that we're afraid of our emotional life. Because as soon as something comes along that's a bit emotionally uncomfortable, we're very sophisticated in our ways and means of avoiding it. So we've probably we've got a kind of range, most of us, of emotional comfort. Some people rather narrow. Right? So narrow that you wonder if... the 
if the, you know if there's any gap at all. I mean, we might recognize ourselves there. But most of us, we've got some kind of range of emotional comfort within which we can be kind of emotionally coherent, we could say. And then as soon as we get close to that range, and certainly when we go beyond that range, we become emotionally uh, disabled in some way, crippled. And we, and we kind of we have this kind of uh, uh, sort of tick around it. So when something and you have to see for yourselves where the edges of emotional discomfort are, and for, sometimes it's actually quite hard to find them because we're so used to moving away from that kind of discomfort. I think, kind of culturally. Of course, it doesn't apply to everyone. None of these cultural, uh, no cultural generalization applies to everyone within the culture. But culturally, British Arab are, have got a particular take on emotional comfort and discomfort. And there's something about um, emotional displays of almost any kind that British people tend to find uncomfortable. No? Emo- displays of sort of tender emotion, upset, tears, that we find often a bit, oh, oh, oh. You know, even if you don't, we don't necessarily individually, you, I'm sure you know that reaction of people, oh, oh, oh my goodness. You know, kind of just feeling very uncomfortable around upset, around sensitivity, around sadness, around some display of emotion. We also sometimes get very kind of frozen or uncomfortable about the display of more volatile emotions. Somebody being very angry, shouting. You know, sometimes just hearing somebody raise their voice, we can feel, oh my goodness, something, something dreadful, something unacceptable, something terrible. And the place where our emotional range tends to get most pinched is, again, when we come back from the externalities of encountering emotional life out there in some way. It's most pinched when we encounter emotional life in here. Sadness. Fear. Anxiety. Confusion, jealousy. I better not start to try and list the general range of human emotions because, you know, we'd be here a long time. And when we hit up against somewhere that doesn't fit or isn't within our our particular range of emotional comfort, it can feel very threatening that's in a way the definition of the range of comfort what's within it feel doesn't feel threatening and what's without feels so threatening that we feel we can't go there and in an environment like this in some ways we're quite we're quite kind of out of control many of the usual mechanisms of control the behavioural mechanisms of control, the attentional mechanisms of control that we have, we've kind of lost. You know, we, we didn't bring a TV with us. I hope. <laughs> that you can just, you know, when things get a bit, oh, I don't know what... Oh, watch the TV. Oh. Very soothing. Or the fridge. Great atten- temple of the recoverer of emotional comfort. So it takes some courage to give open, curious, caring attention. To allow whatever emotional movements might show up. Whatever the heart life of the moment might be, 
the sense is often, if I go into this place, and this place might be, as I say, anxiety, might be anger, might be sadness, might be whatever, the myriad uh, emotional movements that you've noticed today. If you haven't noticed any emotional movements at all, no life of the heart going on, there may be a suggestion in there that the range of emotional comfort is possibly narrower than you think. And when I'm talking about emotion, I don't mean it doesn't have to be some big dramatic kind of emotion. It might be irritability. It might be impatience. might be a kind of sort of subtle, snide kind of commentary on other people. Coming from some sense of uh, uh, disgruntlement. Now when we start to get close directly to our emotional experience, again, rather than through the fearful, reactive relationship, which spins out into a story. When the emotion of sadness is there, the, the habitual reaction isn't to feel the sadness directly. The habitual action is to go to what it was that made us sad, to replay endlessly the story. To think endlessly how it could have been different, how it should have been different, how if I could do it again, I'd do it differently, how what I could do afterwards might make an effect on... Same with anger. The habitual relationship with anger isn't to feel it directly, isn't to give it open, curious, caring attention. It's to get all kind of self-righteous. To think, how could he have? How could she have? Why did they? What? Da, 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 da. We try and solve our emotional, the emotional residue of our life. That means the way situations in the past that have caused some kind of emotional uh, response are still acting in the present. We try to solve our emotional residue at the level of the story that created it. And it doesn't work. If it, would, if it worked, then you'd have managed to replay that bloody story enough times to work it out. The fact that the emotional residue keeps coming back is proof that the story by itself hasn't got the power to resolve it. I think Einstein said something beautiful about that to the effect of um, a, no, pro, no real problem can be solved on the level at which it was created. Does anyone know is that accurate? I'm always misquoting people. But someone thinks it's accurate. Good. So it takes courage again to come back from the reactive fearful relationship which basically says oh I'm not going there it's too uncomfortable and so we escape from going there by replaying the story it takes courage to be willing to not do that to keep on coming back with our attention even though the habit's strong so the habit keeps taking us off there to keep coming back and listening to our heart Listening to the movement of sadness or irritability or whatever it is. Letting it have its life without reacting to it. It is uncomfortable. It is a genuine challenge. But it's the discomfort that ends discomfort. The Buddha called the dukkha that ends dukkha. It is uncomfortable to come into rather tender, raw, direct contact with the emotional life that we've spent maybe decades defending against and distracting from. It is uncomfortable. 
But it's much, much more uncomfortable to spend years, lifetimes maybe, running away from ourselves. Running away from what seems like, when we haven't examined it closely or clearly enough, seems unacceptable, unexperienceable, unapproachable. That's really uncomfortable. That's really hard. To run our life on the engine of fear. So, it does take courage. It does take willingness to come into that kind of tender, immediate contact with ourselves. But to be in direct contact with our emotional life is what allows it to unfold, to unwind, to resolve. It's the idea that it's unapproachable that makes it seem so fearful. When we actually approach it, there's nothing unexperienceable. And those very feelings that seem like, I can't let that in, I can't go there. The feelings that seem shameful, that seem overwhelming, they're the ones we most need to allow in. There are no wrong feelings. There's nothing that's really outside that range of emotional possibility. Nothing that needs to be kept out. Nothing that we need to be afraid of in our hearts. But of course, I can't convince you of that. I would really hope that you wouldn't try to be convinced. I only hope to sow the seed of the invitation I've been speaking about since yesterday evening. (coughs) The invitation to be here, to attend to a your life, to see what's in here. The invitation to dare to come really close to yourself. The invitation to be on the lookout for when that range of emotional comfort is coming into play, for when there's some signal of, oh, don't go here. For when there's some tendency to take off, to distract, to defend. Some tendency to get into the story and rely on that. Some tendency to, in the present, find some way that the emotion latches onto to reinforce it without actually examining it. So if there's irritability, oh, you can find plenty of things to be irritable about at Gaia House. Of course you can. Not particularly Gaia House, right? Anywhere, any situation. But given that this is the one we're in, oh, plenty of things. Plenty of things about these awful other people to be irritable about. Plenty of things about the way things are set up to be irritable about. Plenty of things about me to be irritable about. So what are you going to do? Let that emotional movement called irritability colour your whole sense of participation in life in this moment. Let yourself believe that all those things really have the power in finding them irritable to disturb your well-being, to shake your freedom of being. Or are you going to get interested 
in irritability, in how it plays out. Because my hunch is that if you find things to be irritable here about, you probably can find things other places to be irritable about. What we perceive externally, after all, is the reflection of what's going on internally. So you can take your irritability around the world with you. Or you can attend to it in your heart. You can dare to come into contact with your emotional discomfort. Giving it open, curious caring attention allowing it to move allowing yourself to feel what's going on in your chest, in your heart in your throat, in your belly in the various tightening and contracting in the movement of heat or cold or throbbing or shaking in the tears that might come forth Tears, as I said to someone earlier today, are the kind of lubrification of our emotional life. The lubrification. Is that a word? Lubrication, isn't it? I'm translate, it's a bad translation from French. The lubrification. Lubrication. Tears are the lubrication of the heart, of the heart cracking open. We're afraid, easily, of mental life. Afraid might sound like a strong word to use, but if we look subtly, that's what's going on. We might not think in an everyday sense, I'm afraid of contact with my body, afraid of contact with my emotional life, afraid of my mind. It sounds, when we say it like that, afraid of body, afraid of heart, afraid of mind, sounds like an incredibly kind of pinched, neurotic, uh, uh, tense, um, disastrous state of affairs. But actually, (laughs) it is. Compared to the real possibility of us abiding free from fear, it is a terrible state of affairs. And you know, I'm I'm talking about a level of fear with of heart and mind and body in which, you know, as as uh, basically everyone is here, in which we're pretty well functioning individuals in which we probably look fairly well adjusted, in which by you know general society's measures, we are fairly well adjusted. We manage the life of our bodies and our hearts and our minds. But when we put our life under the microscope, when we kind of uh, magnify, which is really what meditation is, the magnification of life, then we start to notice the way in which, on a quite subtle level, we have a relationship with these aspects of our life, which is, we start to notice, a fearful one, a resistant one. One in which we have these various kind of no-go areas. And coming to an environment like this tends to... uh, Remove some of our habitual ways of avoiding those no-go areas. So as I say, we're afraid of uh, mental life. Speaking with people today in the group, quite common uh, report from people of somehow feeling like being here was was like being in a battleground with their minds. These crazy minds, 
They just go on and on and on. Commentating. Describing. Criticizing. Measuring. Evaluating. Finding fault with. And we seem to swing between either believing in all of that, giving it authority to describe the way our life is, or, or and then f- flipping over to kind of uh, trying to push against that, uh, get rid of that, resist that, shut that up. The Buddha kind of um well well slightly different maybe but just I'd like to compare that image of that sense of feeling like we're in battle with our minds to the way in the buddhist tradition the the force of uh that part that structure of our mind which criticizes evaluates commentates measures finds fault with etc So in the in the Buddhist tradition, that structure is known as Mara, the beater or the killer, and is personified as this kind of demon-like figure that would come and harass the Buddha all through his life. And in terms of this sense of mind being like a battleground, I think of Mara as the beater or the killer. It's kind of battle-like imagery. It's kind of violent imagery. But in some ways, that's how we feel to be harassed or uh, harangued by our minds. And so that tendency to evaluate and criticize is like uh, being beaten. So just a couple of reflections. It's always hard for me to speak about this briefly. I teach a whole week-long retreat just on, just on our relationship with this, this uh, evaluating structure in our minds, our relationship with Mara. And firstly, the way in which the Buddha on the night of his awakening was attacked by the armies of Mara to carry on that kind of battle-like imagery. Mara showed up and said, Who the hell do you think you are? What gives you the right to be here? Who thinks you could understand the great... uh, What makes you think you could understand the great matter of life and death? And the Buddha was completely destabilized by this. And he opened his eyes and kind of looked around to recognize, oh, this isn't all that's going on, right? Mara's invasion, or in, in our kind of more psychological way of talking, we'd say that, that inner voice or that structure in our mind giving us a hard time, doubt, who do I think I am, what am I doing here, how could I think I could understand anything? Opened his eyes to realise, oh, it's not just me and my crazy mind here. It's not just me and Mara. And he touched the earth as a way of in the language of the tradition, it says, calling the earth to bear witness on his right to be there. As a way of establishing some ground. Oh, as a way of coming back to something larger than his own crazed mind. And the, the statue, some of you can probably see, it's not very well lit. But the statue here in the hall is of that posture of the Buddha touching the ground. It's worth remembering for us when our mind feels like a crazy place somehow. Oh, look, all of life supporting me to be here. The earth's holding me up, breath coming and going. There's life, there's consciousness, there's beating heart there's all these kind of sensitivity of my organs picking up these subtle signals of life everything supporting me 
being here. Except one little niggling thing that doesn't seem so supportive. And that's our own crazed, nagging, complaining minds. After that night of the Buddha's awakening, before which he was disturbed in that way, for the rest of his life, every time Mara showed up, the Buddha would just say, Mara, I see you. Like he one would to a child hiding behind a door, covered in a sheet, trying to pretend they were being a ghost to scare us. Hello, I know it's you. And the Buddha and the Mara then would always describe in the texts, Mara would droop his shoulders and slink away. When we're not in fearful reactivity, when we're not giving that structure of our minds the authority to describe who and how we are, when we just know it to be that structure. Hello, I see you then it loses its power. It can't sustain when we know, oh, that doubting thought, it's just a doubting thought. That criticizing thought, it's just a criticizing thought. It's not the truth of who I am or how I am. And yet we give our mental life so much authority it becomes easily the only way we experience life. Through our ideas. Everything gets reduced to an idea. Ourselves. Just an idea. This alive, dynamic ever-changing flow of impressions and sensations and vibrations and experiences and interactions gets reduced to an idea called Martin. An idea is a dead thing. Our life isn't a dead thing. Our life is an an, an ungraspable because of its ever-moving aliveness. And yet that's reduced to an idea. An idea that might pop up in various different moments as our name or our age or our gender or our role. Ideas that come up in terms of our history, etc., etc. What would it mean to give open, curious, caring awareness to these processes without relying on an idea. Relying on ideas is a fearful way to meet life. The subtle view underneath, if we look, is that we're seeking some security in the in the idea because it's known and it's familiar. And the fear is if I don't rely on the idea, oh everything seems every how how where, where am I going to land? in this nebulous, ever-changing, fluid experience. How about if we didn't land? Maybe there's some freeing potential in there. Reminds me of a story uh, Jack Cornfield, or an image that Jack would use to describe spiritual practice. He said, it's like, It says, beginning this practice is like jumping out of an aeroplane. And after a while we realize we've got no parachute. But then we realize there's no ground. (laughs) There's a lot of insight in that image. And if we let ourselves reflect on it. Well, it's too late, friends. We've already jumped out the aeroplane. You may be starting to (laughs) realise there's no parachute. 
that's a that's a terrifying moment. That's a moment that provokes all our old ways of wanting to clutch at the fearful relationship, clutch for a parachute that isn't there. We kind of recognize some authentic possibility in not relying on our old fearful ways. And yet, we're not sure, maybe, how much we can really trust to not hold on, to not react. It's pretty scary to not have a parachute. But what's scary about it is the anticipation of hitting the ground. What if there's no ground? Just free, free, free fall. That which we're so desperate to protect. This sense of self that we assemble out of physical life, emotional life, mental life. That we're so desperate to get right, to fix to present well, to get right for others, to get right for ourselves. What if there isn't anything here that we need to protect? What if there's nothing here we need to be afraid of? What if we can meet life? That we sometimes slightly artificially call physical life mental life, emotional life. What if we can meet it with open, curious, caring attention? (coughs) What if we dare not to defend against what's happening or distract from what's happening? What if we dare to allow bodily life to unfold, emotional life to be met, mental life to pass through? (coughs) It's my great hope with these small reflections that they can contribute to a truly fearless life. To a truly free relationship with life. Whatever unfolds within it. That's my hope for each one of us and for all beings everywhere. Oh, it's about 8.30. Time for some reflection, for some quiet walking or sitting maybe. For some of you I know that translates into a cup of tea. And then there'll be a bell in about 15 minutes for the last short uh, sitting together to end the evening. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.